The incarnation of the Son of God is absolutely essential for the church in order for it to be the church, a society of renewed humanity. Thus, for the people of the church who have perceived the whole height of the religious ideal of the Holy Church, Jesus Christ always was and is the Son of God, of one essence with God the Father. Others, writes St. Irenaeus, attribute no significance to the descent of the Son of God and to the economy of His incarnation, which the apostles proclaimed and the prophets foretold, and through which the perfection of mankind must be fulfilled. Such persons must be added to the number of the irreligious. At the time of St. Irenaeus, some false teachers were asserting that the entire matter of Christ consisted only in that he gave a new law in place of the ancient, which he abolished. St. Irenaeus, on the other hand, asserted that neither the new law nor the new teaching was the aim of Christ's advent, but its aim was the recreation of the fallen human nature. If, he writes, there arises within you such a thought, what new thing did the Lord bring with his advent? Then know that he brought everything new. He brought himself and thus renewed and gave life to mankind. If anyone denies the church with its religious ideals, then Christ becomes for him only a teacher-philosopher in the category of Buddha, Confucius, Socrates, Lao Tzu, and others. Moreover, Christ as a teacher appears to be far from original. Compliant scholarship cites a multitude of various sources, including Babylonian myths, from which Christ's teachings are supposedly borrowed. Christ is likened to a poor scholar who compiles his work by borrowing, not always successfully, from the works of various other people. The enemies of Christianity glowingly point to the results of scientific research and declare that, in essence, Jesus of Nazareth did not even give a new teaching. He only repeated what had been said even without him. For those who believe in Christ, however, all this talk about various influences on Christianity is completely senseless. The essence of Christ's activities, as we have seen, is not at all in teaching, but in salvation. God sent His only begotten Son so that we could receive life through Him. Even though insights of truth which are close to Christianity can be found in the teachings of earthly philosophers, it was Christ who renewed human nature, created the church, sent down the Holy Spirit, and thus established the beginning of a new life which no mortal philosopher could do. The descent to earth of the Son of God and His death on the cross were indispensable for the creation of the church and all those who separate Christianity sooner or later come to the blasphemy of the denial of Christ the God-man, and they come to it because the divinity of Christ becomes unnecessary for them. There are an increasing number of people among us who dream of some sort of churchless Christianity. These people have a seemingly constant anarchical system of thought. They are either incapable, or more often, are simply too lazy to think through to the end of their thoughts. Without even speaking of the most evident contradictions of the churchless quasi-Christianity, it is always possible to see that it is completely void of the genuine grace of Christian life and the inspiration and quickening of the Spirit. When people take the Gospel book, forgetting that the Church gave it to them, then it becomes like the Quran, said to have been dropped by Allah from the sky. 
when they somehow contrive to overlook the teaching about the church in it, then all that remains of Christianity is the teaching, so powerless to recreate life in man, as is every philosophical system. Our forebears, Adam and Eve, sought to become like gods without God, relying on the magical power of the beautiful apple. This is how many of our contemporaries dream of being saved, with the gospel, but without the church and without the God-man. They hope on the book of the gospel exactly as Adam and Eve hope on the paradise apple. The book, however, does not have the power to give them a new life. People who deny the church constantly speak about evangelical principles, about evangelical teaching, but Christianity as life is completely alien to them. In the churchless form, Christianity is only a sound, now and then sentimental, but always a caricature and lifeless. It is precisely these people who, while denying the church, have made Christianity, in the words of V.S. Soloviev, deathly boring. As David Strauss observed, when the edifice of the church is destroyed, and on the bare, poorly leveled place, there is erected only the edifying sermon, the result is sad and terrible. In the past, our most consistent preacher of churchless Christianity was Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy confused many with his preaching, but it is in the example of Tolstoyism that one can clearly observe the insolvency of Christianity without the church. The initial point in the false teaching of Tolstoy can be called his sharp separation of Christianity from the church. Tolstoy had roundly condemned the church, while at the same time admiring Christianity. For him, however, Christianity immediately became only a teaching, and Christ only a teacher. When any kind of teaching is placed before us, it is not that important for us to know whose teaching it is. For Tolstoy, the living person of Christ, lost all significance and meaning. Having taken Christ's teaching, it appeared possible to forget about him himself. He denied the God-man, referring to him as a crucified Jew and a dead Jew. With that, the gospel is severed from its very beginning where the proclamation is made of the supernatural birth of the Son of God from the Virgin Mary, and it is severed from its end where the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead and his ascension into heaven is recorded. Tolstoy did not limit himself to this cutting off of the gospel from its beginning and its end. He also restructured its middle according to his own tastes. He thus compelled his Jesus to say only that he, the teacher of Yasnaya Polyana, the name of Leo Tolstoy's estate, commanded. Christ himself promised to send his disciples another comforter. This comforter, the divine advocate, is honored by the Church of Christ as the source of the new abundant church life, which is the gift of grace. The Apostle Paul, as we have seen, constantly speaks of the Holy Spirit living in the church. Nevertheless, Tolstoy denied the Holy Spirit. He called the Orthodox Church not Christ's, but mockingly, the Holy Spirit's. He then stooped to blaspheming the holy mysteries through which the member of the church receives the grace of the Holy Spirit for a new life. Baptism is a mystery of rebirth. For Tolstoy, it became the bathing of infants. The Holy Eucharist, 
without which, according to the teaching of Christ himself, one cannot have life within him, became, in the blasphemous terminology of Tolstoy, soup, which one swallows from a little spoon. One can thank Tolstoy for at least being consistent, having limited all of Christ's work to his teaching alone, and having denied the church, it was a logical necessity for Tolstoy to come to all of his conclusions which destroyed Christianity itself. At least Tolstoy clearly demonstrated for us what results to expect from the absurd separation of Christianity from the church and the negation of the church in the name of imaginary Christianity. If one is to separate Christianity from the church, then there is no need for the divinity of the Savior, and the Holy Spirit is unnecessary. Without the Holy Spirit, however, and without the divinity of the Savior, without the incarnation of the Son of God, the teaching of Jesus the Nazarene becomes of little value for life, just as any other teaching, for it is impossible to share the Socratic optimism according to which knowledge is virtue. The insolvency of Tolstoy's churchless understanding of Christianity is evident from the fact that Tolstoyism created no kind of life. Christianity is possible only in union with the living God-man Christ and in the grace-created union of people with the church. In Tolstoyism, there is neither one nor the other. In place of the enthusiasm of the martyrs and ascetics of the church, instead of the bond of love which binds the apostles and believers so strongly that they have one heart and one soul, instead of all this, the followers of Tolstoy produced only grotesque and lifeless Tolstoyite colonies. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. As V.S. Soloviev said, Tolstoy united around himself only a few dozen stupid people of the sort who are always ready to scatter in various directions. The great teacher, it appears, taught nothing to anyone, and the green staff saved no one because not a staff, but the cross of Christ is necessary for salvation. Thus, using Tolstoyism as an example, we see that churchless Christianity leads to a terrible distortion and even to the destruction of Christianity itself. It is refuted by its own complete lifelessness. Protestant false teaching is disgraced by this same lifelessness. What have the Protestants attained, having obscured the concept of the church with their philosophizing? They have attained only disunity and most hopeless disunity. Protestantism is constantly breaking down into more sects. There is no Protestant church life, but some sort of scarcely living life in separate sects and communities. Protestantism has killed the general church life, about which the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in that first sacred prayer. In actual fact, the fundamentalist Protestants stand far closer to Orthodox Christians than do the Protestants of extreme rationalistic doctrines who have nothing in common with Christianity, except for the arbitrary and baseless assuming of the name. They do not even seek a blessing for that. What kind of unity is possible between them? What kind of life can they have? We are not saying all this entirely from ourselves. In some moments of enlightenment, Protestants themselves say the very same thing even more sharply. The country, writes one of them, 
which was the cradle of the Reformation, is becoming the grave of the Reformationist faith. The Protestant faith is on the verge of death. All the latest works about Germany, just as all personal observations, agree in this. Is it not noticeable in our contemporary theology that its representatives have lost everything positive? Another of them asks. Still sadder are the words of a third. The vital strength of Protestantism is being exhausted in a muddle of dogmatic schools, theological discord, church strife. The Reformation is forgotten, or it is held in contempt. God's word, for which fathers died, is being subjected to doubts. Protestantism is disunited, weak, and powerless. An Orthodox researcher of Lutheranism ends his work with this dismal conclusion. Left to their own devices, their own subjective reason and faith, Lutherans courageously went ahead on a false path and autodidactically perverted Christianity, perverted the symbolic dogma itself, having placed the Lutheran denomination on the edge of ruin. In Lutheranism, the authority of the first reformers is increasingly denied. More and more, the community of the faith is being destroyed and Lutheranism is coming closer to its spiritual death. At the present time, Protestants already openly acknowledge that in Germany, not more than a third of the pastors recognize the divinity of Christ. What is this if not a spiritual death? For according to the Apostle, he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. At one time in Moscow, there was a great clamor about the International Christian Student Union. In the very center of Russian Orthodox holy places, there arrived a large number of various missionaries of this union, such as John Raleigh Mott and Miss Ross, who addressed the Russian students with English preaching. We also heard a lecture about this overseas union. It was said that the union was non-confessional. In it, freedom was given to every Christian denomination. Denominations unite in the union, according to the terminology of the lecturer, on a federative basis. Subsequently, a form of Christianity independent of the church is theorized. This is precisely the reason that the union is something which was born dead. Is there, or can there be, any Christian life in such a union? If there is, then it is most pitiful. Imagine a congress of Christian student organizations at which there appeared delegates of federative united denominational fractions, a congress with all its resolutions, desires, and so on. If such a union does take place, then how endlessly lower it will be than the genuine church life of orthodoxy, only a person roaming in some foreign place far from holy orthodoxy and from all faith in such a barely living life in union on some sort of federative basis seem to be a new revelation, a joy for the empty soul. What kind of blessings are these mere flickers of life in comparison with the fullness of the orthodox universal life? While I was listening to the lecture on the International Christian Student Union, my heart was filled with sadness and sorrow. How many sincere people who are thirsty for God, thirsty for life, are perishing of hunger and being fed the suckle of some overseas student union? Can it be that they do not know how to make use of the abundant bread in the home of the Heavenly Father, 
the Orthodox Church? It is necessary only to forget all the federative bases, to freely give oneself up to complete obedience to the Orthodox Church, and to adhere to the completeness of church life, to the life of the body of Christ, in order to make use of these abundant breads. The concept of the Church was wonderfully understood by A. S. Komiakov, who said that for the Church of Christ, unia is impossible, only unity is possible. There have been occasions when frivolous people thought to create an international religion by way of the study room. Millions of appeals were sent out with the invitation to unite in this common religion, the project which was credited to these appeals. This scheme, however, was outlined in the most general terminology, under which a Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, or Jew could sign with identical comfort. Of course, if all people would agree to this scheme, it would in no way unite them among each other. General abstract theses would not obligate anyone to anything. People would remain the same. No one would receive salvation. It is complete madness to attempt to unite people on the basis of some teaching. For this, a special supernatural power is required, which is possessed only by the one holy Catholic Church of Christ. It is not at all difficult to answer the question, what do these and other similar phenomena of our contemporary life mean, and on what grounds could they have appeared? The grounds for them is the fact that, for many of our contemporaries, the genuine Orthodox Christian ideal of the Church appeared to be too lofty. People have now become so stagnated and stifled in their self-love that the Orthodox concept of the Church seems to them to be some sort of coercion of personality, an incomprehensible and unnecessary despotism. The Orthodox concept of the Church demands from everyone much self-denial, humility, and love. Thus, in the hearts of our contemporaries, which are impoverished of love, and for whom the dearest thing is self-love, this ideal is a burden too uncomfortable to carry. What is to be done? Oh, mankind knows well how to act in such cases. When an ideal seems to be beyond its strength, too heavy, it is substituted by something more suitable. The true ideal is depreciated, and its essence is distorted although sometimes the former name is retained. How many have already given up as hopeless this ideal of love? They say that to build a community life on the basis of this love is a vain dream from which it is better to withdraw early in order to escape failure later. As if this were not enough, they even condemn as unhealthy and harmful any enthusiasm with the ideal of church or religious life in general which would somehow hinder the necessary progress of societal life. Not very long ago, when the series Vecchi appeared, the most progressive camp of public-spirited persons raised a desperate cry. Reaction! Reaction! Having set love aside as useless in public life, something reserved only for the personal needs of man, they turned their attention exclusively to law, with which they think to cure all human ailments. Moreover, virtue in general is substituted with order and external propriety and decency. Gold is expensive, and so for its substitution they have invented a gilding, 
just as they have thought up propriety and external decency as a substitute for the missing virtue. They conduct themselves in exactly this same way with the ideal of the church, which demands the complete unity of souls and hearts. They substitute the church with a Christianity having an indefinite value, as we have already said. Their conscience is not troubled by such an act. For all that, it is still Christianity a decent sort of name. Without the church, it is possible to place whatever pleases oneself under this name. In this way, you will not completely break with Christ, and yet you will not especially inconvenience yourself. In a word, the wolves are fed, but the sheep are not eaten. The great misfortune of our time lies in the fact that no one wishes to admit frankly their own spiritual poverty and that their hearts have been hardened to such a degree that Christ's ideal of the church has become burdensome and even unintelligible. No, having copper instead of gold, they now wish to declare gold valueless. Now they assault the church with bitterness and deny the very concept of the church, hypocritically taking refuge in loud and stereotypically beautiful, tedious phrases about personal freedom an individual interpretation of Christianity, and about a religion of freedom and spirit. Christ's ideal of a single church community, that all may be one as we are one, appears to them to be a distortion and a disfigurement, and thus it loses its vital meaning. Churchless Christianity, the so-called evangelical Christianity, assorted world Christian student unions, all this is nothing other than a debasement and distortion of Christ's concept of the church, killing all genuine Christian, grace-filled church life. Are these things which we have spoken about, however, the only phenomena that testify to the insufficiency in the contemporary understanding of the unbreakable bond of Christianity with the church? We meet with this lack of comprehension at absolutely every step. Now people who think about God in general, people who are hardly interested in religious questions, who try to establish themselves in life without any living faith, nevertheless consider it a duty of propriety, as it were, to speak out in respect of Christianity. Their words, of course, resound with manifest falseness and hypocrisy. We have not yet encountered a full and open contempt for Christianity, this limit has been reached by only a few who are oppressed by the devil, Acts 10.38. The progressives, if, of course, one considers the direction of hell progress. The ordinary man in the street usually speaks about Christianity with a certain amount of respect. Christianity? Oh, that, of course, is a lofty and great teaching. Who is arguing against that? This rough approval is how one speaks of Christianity, while, at the same time, it is seemingly considered a sign of good form to be in some sort of often unconscious opposition to everything of the Church. In the souls of many, a respect for Christianity somehow manages to coexist with disdain for the Church. Such people are not embarrassed to call themselves Christians, at least, but they do not want to hear about the Church and are ashamed to display any church consciousness in any way. People who, according to their birth certificates, are of the Orthodox faith, 
with a strange, malicious delight point to the actual and more often imaginary shortcomings in church life. They do not grieve about these shortcomings. In accordance with the commandment of the apostle, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. On the contrary, they gloat. In the so-called progressive press, there are many persons who earn their living almost exclusively from slander against the church institutions and representatives of the church hierarchy. Slander against everything of the church has now become, for some, merely a profitable trade. Nevertheless, many hurry to believe these notorious falsehoods without any hesitation. Unkind people, having heard something evil about their enemies, rush to believe all of its evilness, fearing lest its evil be proven untrue. This is precisely what one must constantly observe among people in their relationship to the church. Thus, again we see how widely spread is the notion of the separation of Christianity from the church. They consider themselves to be Christians, but they want to hear nothing of the church. In surroundings far removed from the faith in general, there is an inconceivable confusion of notions. When people who are far from the church begin to judge it, it can be clearly seen that they have absolutely no understanding of the essence of Christianity and the church, and thus the very virtues of the church appear to them as its deficiencies. As an example, how many outbursts of blind enmity towards the church did the death of Tolstoy, i.e., the refusal of the church to bury him, provoke? But is the church guilty of the fact that Tolstoy departed from it, having become its obvious and dangerous enemy? He, you see, tore himself from the church as a visible society, even considering it to be a harmful institution. If the church kept such members, however, would this not mean for the church to deny itself? What, therefore, is the meaning of all these attacks against the church in the press, at meetings, and in conversations. Reason absolutely refuses to understand all this. It is completely impossible to find even the most remote rationality in the speeches and actions which one had occasion to listen to and read about. Every political party retains the right to excommunicate from itself members who have betrayed the party views and who have begun to act in a manner harmful to the party. Only the Orthodox Church, for some reason, cannot excommunicate one who himself has departed from it and has become its enemy. Yet, who would begin to reproach and abuse any of the social democrats or cadets because they had stopped having intercourse with and had publicly denounced one of their former members after he had gone over to the camp of the monarchists? Yes, we have observed the blind and senseless outbursts of satanic malice against the Holy Church, but saddest of all is the fact that many have abused the church in the name of Christianity. Thousands of times one has read, Here they have excommunicated Tolstoy, but was he not a true Christian? Forgetting all the blasphemy of Tolstoy and his denial of Christ the God-man, such speeches are repeated by people who were evidently sincere and not by professional newspaper liars alone. Again, we are presented with the idea, firmly embedded in contemporary minds, of the possibility of some sort of true Christianity without the church, or even sharply hostile to it. 
Could anything like this be possible if the idea of the church was clear? If it had not been substituted by some other completely unintelligible and indefinite values? Can anyone imagine that in the apostolic period, the Christian church would have been subjected to any kind of reproaches on the part of heathens because it excommunicated unfit members, heretics, for example, from itself? In the first centuries, nevertheless, excommunication from the church was the most common measure of church discipline, and everyone considered it to be fully lawful and very useful. Why was this so? Because then the church was seen as a clear and definite value, precisely as a church and not some sort of Christianity. At that time, there was no room for the absurd thought that Christianity is one thing and the church another, as if Christianity were possible apart from the church. In those times, it was realized that enmity against the church was also enmity against Christianity. Animosity towards the church in the name of some sort of supposed Christianity is solely a product of our sorrowful times. When Christianity appeared before the eyes of the world precisely as a church, then this world itself clearly understood and involuntarily acknowledged that the church and Christianity are one and the same. Now there is not such a sharp definition sufficient to distinguish the unity of the church from everyone outside of the church. Now everyone is held on an equal plane, we, those in the church, and even those who themselves ask to be excommunicated. One can truly say that there is no church discipline. Everything has become non-obligatory for the intellectual laity, attendance at divine services, confession, and Holy Communion. Thus, the Church has no clear and definite borders which would separate it from those outside. Sometimes it seems as if our whole Church is in dispersion, in disorder. One cannot tell who is ours and who is the enemy. Some sort of anarchy is ruling in the minds of many. Too many teachers have appeared, and a dividing of the body of the Church has occurred. Ancient church bishops taught from the high place. Now, one who says of himself that he is only at the porch or even only near the church walls, nevertheless considers himself entitled to teach the entire church, including the hierarchy. These people gather and compose all their opinions about church questions from various public sheets, as Metropolitan Philaret used to call newspapers where items on church matters are written by defrocked priests and church renegades of all sorts, or embittered and insolent scoffers, as foretold in 2 Peter 3.3, 3, or people who have no connection with the church and who feel nothing toward it but animosity, for example, the Jews. In such a mass of confusion, many are already asking with concern, where is the church? That is why in our time there are many varied and fantastic searchings. In the apostolic age, those who sought the salvation of their souls headed for the church, and the outsiders did not dare trouble them. Then there was no possibility for the question, where is the church? It was a clear and definite value, sharply separated from everything not of the church. Now there stands some sort of intermediate stage between the church and the world, and there is no longer that clear separation. The church 
and that which is outside the church. There is also some sort of indefinite Christianity, and even something else which is not Christianity, but a general abstract religion. These vague concepts of Christianity and religion have darkened the light of the church, so that it is poorly seen by those who seek, which is why searching so often goes over into wandering. For this reason there is, in our days, such an abundance of those who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. A new sport has been created, if we may call it that, a sport of God-seeking. God-seeking has become the goal in itself, and if their efforts were ever crowned with success, they would feel themselves highly unfortunate and immediately turn, with their former zeal, from God-seeking to God-fighting, i.e. Theomachism. Many people frankly build a name for themselves in the sport of God-seeking. One recalls the stern condemnation of Bishop Michael Gribanovsky against all such seeking. They seek, he said, because they have lost all principles, and while they look for better ones, poorer ones take advantage of the confusion and cheat without any twinge of conscience. For what kind of conscience is there when no one knows what is true, what is good, what is evil? Intermediate understandings of religion and Christianity only estrange many people from the truth, because for one who sincerely seeks God, they become like toll houses. Many join the path of these arduous seekings, but very many do not complete it with success. A significant proportion remain traveling from ordeal to ordeal, not finding blessed peace. Finally, in this realm of half-light, half-truth, in this realm of the lack of understanding and of the indefinite, in this vague, unsettled world, the very soul degenerates, becomes weak, and is poorly receptive to grace-given inspiration. Such a soul will continue to seek even after it finds what it is looking for. Then there is created a pitiful type of religious idler, as F. M. Dostoevsky called them. The above-mentioned state of affairs imposes a special responsibility on all church members in our time. Members of the church are very guilty in that they fail to point the way clearly, and they poorly illuminate with their examples the final point of arrival for those who are seeking. This point is not the abstract understanding of Christianity, but precisely the church of the living God. According to the example of many people who have followed the agonizing path of seeking to its completion, it is possible to discern that a lasting peace draws near only when man comes to believe in the church, when he accepts, with all his being, the idea of the church in such a way that, for him, the separation of Christianity from the church is inconceivable. Then begins the real quickening of church life, Man feels that he is a branch of a great, ever-budding tree of the church. He is conscious of himself not as a follower of some kind of school, but as a member of the body of Christ, with whom he has a common life and from whom he receives this life. Only one who has come to believe in the church, who is guided by the concept of the church in the appraisal of the phenomena of life and the direction of his personal life, one who has felt a church life within himself. He, and only he, is on the correct path. 
much that earlier seemed indefinite and vague will become obvious and clear. It is especially precious that in times of great vacillation, of wandering from side to side, and from the right to the left and from the left to the right, every church-conscious person feels himself standing on a steadfast, centuries-old rock. How firm it feels under his feet. The Spirit of God lives in the church. This is not a dry and dogmatic thesis, preserved only through respect for what is old. No, this is truth. Truth which can be experienced and known by everyone who has been penetrated by church consciousness. This grace-filled church life cannot be the subject of dry scholastic research, for it is accessible for study only through experience. Human language is capable of speaking only vaguely and unclearly about this grace-filled life. St. Hilary of Poitiers spoke correctly when he said, This is the characteristic virtue of the Church, that it becomes comprehensible when you adopt it. Only he who has church life knows about church life. He requires no proofs, but for one who does not have it, it is something which cannot be proved. For a member of the church, the object of all his life must be constantly to unite more and more with the life of the church, and at the same time, preach to others about the church, not substituting it with Christianity, not substituting life with dry and abstract teaching. Now, there is too often talk about the insufficiency of life in the church, about the reviving of the church. All such talk is difficult to understand, and we are very much inclined to acknowledge it is completely senseless. Life in the church can never run low, for the Holy Spirit abides in it until the end of time. There is life in the church, and only churchless people do not notice this life. The life of the Spirit of God is incomprehensible to a person who perceives solely with his mind. It may even seem foolish to him, for it is accessible only to a person who perceives with his spirit. People who are of an emotional mode of thinking seldom receive a feeling of the church-conscious life. Yet even now there are people, simple in heart and pious in life, who constantly live by this feeling of the abundant, grace-filled life in the church. This atmosphere of church life and church inspiration can especially be felt in monasteries. Those who speak about the insufficiency of life in the church usually refer to the insufficiencies of church administration, the thousands of consistory papers, and so on. For all those who genuinely understand church life, however, it is as clear as God's day that all these consistories with their eucasis do not affect the depth of church life at all. The deep river of abundant, grace-filled life flows increasingly and gives drink to everyone who wishes to quench his spiritual thirst. This river cannot be dammed up with paper. No, it is not the insufficiency of life in the church which must be spoken of, but of the insufficiency of church consciousness in us. Many live a churchly life, not even clearly realizing the fact. Even if we consciously live a churchly life, we preach little about the blessings of this life. With outsiders, we usually only debate about Christian truths, forgetting about church life. We also are sometimes capable of substituting the church with Christianity, life with abstract theory.
Unfortunately, we ourselves do not value our church and the great blessing of church life enough. We do not confess our faith in the church bravely, clearly, and definitely. While believing in the church, we constantly seem to pardon ourselves for the fact that we still believe in it. We read the ninth article of the Creed without any special joy or even with a feeling of guilt. A church-conscious person is now often confronted with the exclamation of Turgenev's poetry and prose. You still believe, but you are altogether a backward person. And how many have so much courage as to bravely confess? Yes, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I belong to the holy Orthodox church, and thus I am the most advanced person. For only in the church is it possible to have that new life, for the sake of which the Son of God came to the sinful earth. Only in the church can one come to a measure of full growth in Christ. Consequently, only in the church is genuine progress possible. Are we not more inclined to reply to the question, Are you not one of Christ's disciples? With the answer, I do not know him. Conclusion Thus, it must be considered as the most vital necessity of the present time to confess openly that indisputable truth that Christ created precisely the church, and that it is absurd to separate Christianity from the church, and to speak of some sort of Christianity apart from the holy Orthodox Church of Christ. This truth, we believe, will illuminate for many the final goal in their wearisome journey of seeking. It will show them not in lifeless teaching, but in church life, where they can truly recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. This truth will also help to identify church life and to gather the separated children of the church, so that all may be one, as the Lord Jesus Christ prayed before his sufferings. We shall end our discourse with one parable of the type used by the Holy Fathers. The church is like a strong oak, and a man outside the church is like a flying bird. See how the unfortunate bird struggles in a strong wind. How uneven is its flight. It either flies upward, or else it is overturned by the wind. Or it moves slightly forward, and then it is again pushed backward. That is how a person is carried by the winds of false teaching. But just as the bird is calmed in the dense branches of the tree, and peacefully looks out of its refuge on the storm raging past, so a man finds peace when he runs to the church. From his calm refuge he looks out on the ferocious storm near the church walls, and he sorrows for the unfortunate people who are overtaken by this tempest outside the church, and who delay in seeking shelter under its abundant grace. And he prays to the Lord, Unite them to thy holy Catholic and apostolic church that they also may glorify with us the most honorable and majestic name of God, praised in the Holy Trinity. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, of the new martyr St. Hilarion Choitsky, O Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us. Amen.